For December 18th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 494. Star Wars The Last Jedi, The Light Side podcast. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. You know what? We're not like that. We are that. And uh, we are never happier than when we're hanging out together, hanging out with you, and discussing whatever is interesting us that week. And this week, nothing is so interesting as Star Wars The Last Jedi. It opened the week that we are recording this podcast. It is opened to $220 million in estimated domestic box office and uh, i'm sure they're going to you know i don't know name a day after it uh before before the year is over and we'll celebrate the last jedi day every year and remember the jedi and all the things that they did for us before uh before there was the last one uh, i'm your host matt rather and i am here with a, a uh just an incredible rebellions worth of overthinkers here they are in alphabetical order we have Ben Adams. Hello, Ben. Hello, Matt. And Pete Fenzel. Hello, Matt. Mark Lee. Hello, hello. And Richard Rosenbaum. Hello, everyone. May the force be with you, gentlemen, as we launch into this eighth episode in the uh, the never-ending Star Wars trilogy. So here's how we're going to do this. We're going to record a couple of podcasts on The Last Jedi over the next couple weeks, this week and next week. Uh, next week, it will be the dark side of the podcast. But this week, we celebrate the light side of the podcast uh, because the podcasts exist in tension. There is a, a force between all podcasts that keeps them together and holds them apart uh, that is both a, a paradox and also an inevitability and uh, we are going to focus on the light side this week. So to start it off, let's go around the horn. Uh, let's just stay in alphabetical order and let me ask a question. The answer to which is less obvious than I first imagined it was going into this movie. Who is the protagonist in Star Wars The Last Jedi? All right, alphabetical order. Ben, you're going first. Who is the main character of this movie even? So, I mean, I think obviously by the fact that we're asking the question is uh, there's no easy answer to this. Uh, But I'm actually going to go with Kylo Ren as the the protagonist of this movie only because he is the most easily identifiable character arc uh, from the beginning to the end of this movie. You know, he, he comes to the biggest realization and, you know, in the end he's, he's on top of the hill. So uh, yeah, he's, he's the protagonist. He won this movie. All right. Kylo Ren. Uh, interesting. Pete Fenzel, you're next. You know, I'm going to go with Ray and I'm going to say that this movie is sort of like a Dante's Inferno, uh, Pilgrim's Progress movie where the protagonist mostly travels from place to place and meets other people and goes on a journey and that that character is Ray and it's her journey that we the audience follow the most as we go through the story but it is a hard question and I'm curious to hear everyone else's answers yeah uh, uh, me too Mark uh, what do you think I mean it's probably Ray uh, but since that's already taken 
I believe the children are a future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. The children, the future, collective action, the youth, the next generation who will rise up and take down the First Order and restore freedom to the galaxy. There's a lot of that going on here. We'll definitely talk about more of that on the light side of the podcast. I suppose, yeah. And also the ring makers, the, the jewelry makers who make the secret uh, rebellion <laughs> rings because we're going to keep them in business for for decades to come. Uh, all right. Um, Richard, uh, protagonist of the movie. Uh, I think it's got to be Luke Skywalker. He is... Um... He's the only character who uncomplicatedly uh, goes through the hero's journey here. He, he, he has the whole call to adventure, refusal of the call. He has the uh, descent into the underworld, um, uh, the, the uh, atonement with the father in the form of Yoda. He comes back from the underworld to become the hero master of both worlds. And uh, he's, he's the one. He's, he's, and, and he has a complete story that begins and ends in this in this single episode yeah i mean totally totally creditable uh to that and like to to me um i'm going to go with the definition of of protagonist as like someone who acts someone who has a sort of positive path that they go on and i think that the uh the protagonist of this movie is the purple hair of vice admiral holdo Uh, (laughs) (laughs) no uh uh the laura dorn character who uh saves everybody by warping off into the or you know not warping by Hyperspeed, not hyperspeeding by light, light jumping uh, off into the. No, that's from Billie Jean, Matt. Oh. <laughs> she, she goes to light. Is it light speed? Is she goes to is? she goes to ludicrous speed and okay. uh, cuts a, a broad. She hits the plaid. Who's <laughs> going to plaid? Uh, cuts a broad swath through the First Order's fleet, including um, Supreme Supreme Commander Snoke's. Uh, ship and you know makes it possible for uh, what what is left of what is left of what is left of the rebellion um, to to escape. I mean, always be rebelling, I guess, because the rebellion has been. I thought I thought we saved the uh, I thought we saved the galaxy when at you know after we burned Darth Vader on the funeral pyre, and uh, and apparently we still have a lot to to rebel against. So, Matt, uh, Matt, Matt, it's it's always be resisting now. It was rebelling, right. but now it's resisting. Oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, other candidates, by the way, for a protagonist, certainly BB-8, right? Mm-hmm. But the protagonist is someone who does a lot. Uh, man, that little droid gets He's busy. done. Yeah. yeah. But it's always... Yeah, you, a, yeah. He earns all that money. <laughs> <laughs> Like he he really deserved it. It's uh yeah well I I like uh I like the when he shoots it out uh yeah. as a, as a weapon and redistributes that wealth. <laughs> well, but look who gets it. In the end, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, in the end. So this being the light side of the uh, of the podcast, let's talk a little bit about hope. This H word comes up in in a lot of ways throughout the the course of the movie. Uh, you have to have hope um and it i'm not sure that there is a theory uh i'm not sure that there is a theory of hope um beyond like assume that a good thing is going to happen at some indeterminate (laughs) point in the future mark do you have a theory of of hope or what people hope for or put their hope in uh in this movie that you think holds up 
Uh, yeah, I do. I'll tack this first from some of the local angle of like this is the movie, uh, and, and I was saying on the surface, which is that you know the the resistance lights a spark of hope throughout the galaxy, and there and there will there'll be the galaxy, the people of the galaxy, the children, as they referred to earlier in song form. Uh, they will save us. Uh, they will ultimately restore justice to the galaxy. Uh, that's definitely kind of the the biggest political through through line through the main movie itself. I will expand that and uh, talk about uh, how this movie is in a certain way about Trump and Obama and America and all that kind of stuff. Oh, we know we, we're going to go there. But don't worry. Like <laughs> we, we got to do that. OK, so just to sketch it out very briefly. Right. Uh, the Obama years would be akin to, uh, you know, I guess uh, the original trilogy throwing off uh, the empire and restoring freedom, uh, you know, de- de- defeating the Republicans and having George uh, Barack Obama become president. Yay, everything's great again. And then uh, the first order comes back. Trump becomes president. Everything is awful. Like everything seems really on the ropes. Um, but all hope is not lost. There is always the people. The people will save the republic. The people will save the galaxy. The people will save these United States of America. And that's not your own political perspective. Speaking there, they literally they refer to themselves as the resistance, which is, of course, a term that's politically charged in America right now which, associated fair, with left wing like, activism. The Force Awakens with the idea that the term resistance came out in 2015, right, December 2015, right. before that's the 2016 point. election. Uh, but the confluence of the things is 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 not a coincidence, I don't think. No. Especially the idea of senior female privileged, experienced military and political leaders playing such a major and conspicuous role in this movie as a counterweight to the First Order seems to be. It's like Lego Batman in that respect. It's a movie that, that Hillary Clinton is kind of hovering behind uh, as, as a presence. I mean, yeah, the, Kylo Ren and Hux, they're like proud boys. For what is <laughs> <laughs> for what is worth this its attention in in the like the Han Leia um, tension, right? Like it, it is encoded back into the first movie where Leia represented the establishment uh, a little bit, right? And uh, and she and Han came and he was you know he was the flyboy and impetuous and and uh, didn't like authority uh, and and uh, never wanted to hear the odds. Though three PO got out some odds in this movie you know in in uh just in the supremely passive aggressive fashion uh, muttering <laughs> muttering to one to himself yeah, at the they end. mention they mention odds several times and never uh use that line the the han solo line which i thought was really interesting <laughs> yeah well it, it matches up with the idea of hope i think because i always read in the first Star Wars trilogy that Han Solo's relationship with luck was a sort of ecumenical relationship with the force by other means. Right, that, that Han Solo had this preternatural good luck, and it was a result of him being associated with the Force, even though he would not say that he was. And even though he didn't think of it that way, it's sort of whatever you call it is what it is. It's the thing that binds the universe together. But luck and the force and hope in a new hope and in the first star wars trilogy are about things that you accomplish in your own lifetime with through your own actions things will get better for you and in this movie hope is this idea that things will get better after you're dead i think is is kind of after you've passed it seems to be is it relocates it so there's no real room for luck well it's uh, uh, you know it's it's like the well, best you can hope for is you know, you know when to hold them no when to fold them no when to walk away no when to run and the best you can hope for is to die in your sleep uh, is the kind of uh, the way that the gamblers work in this this uh, episode. So I think how I would frame this is I think hope in A New Hope is a product of the thing you're trying to accomplish. So in A New Hope, 
they blow up the Death Star, which is the you know ostensible goal of the movie, and that is the New Hope, which is a great byproduct of the thing you were trying to accomplish. In this movie, hope is pretty much the only objective of the resistance. Like literally all they're trying to do is the barest minimum of survival. And that's what we end up with is about the smallest quantum of resistance that could be left and still have anything resembling hope left. Like it's literally one ship full of like, you know, maybe a dozen people. Uh, and so the, the, the end is hope in and of itself rather than an actual like concrete goal that they accomplish other than mere survival. Would you refer to it as a quantum of solace? then? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure they got much solace. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, hope is well. What uh, hope is supposed to sort of fuel you to do difficult things um, in the face of insurmountable odds? Never tell me the odds. The uh, right and and I think it's misused a couple times. Like one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up as a, as a, as a topic is that Admiral Vice Admiral Laura Dern, um, who if you will recall, is the hero of this movie, uh, says, repeats one of uh, General Leo Organa's bromides, which is, uh, you know, if you only believe in hope, when you, hope is like the sun, uh, you can't only believe in it when you can see it or, or something like that. How will you ever know it's going to... to uh, Come up tomorrow, uh, install solar panels on your roof, and you won't be able to to power your power converters at night. I I, I forget the details. The details aren't important. Uh, but um, at the time, she's actively working on a plan to evacuate the uh, to evacuate the resistance off of their cruiser and in the little transport ships uh, which could fly under the radar and to and to the old abandoned rebel base now she doesn't tell like she gives a, a Poe a speech about how you just have to trust you just have to have kind of an, a quasi-religious faith in things at some point being better even if you don't see how yet uh and and it might have been better at that point to tell him the plan because if you tell him the plan he doesn't send finn and rose off on their pointless mission right uh uh you don't have the the issue with the first order learning about the transports going to the surface and uh, a, a much larger contingent of the rebel of the resistance live to uh, live to fight another day. So th- I mean the the idea that that hope can be just sort of thrown up as as this thing uh, as opposed to like you know decent project management and uh, clear lines clear lines of communication. Is, I don't know. It, see, it seems to me like. Uh, mystical mumbo jumbo substituting yeah. for good organizational communication. Uh, I think I think you're right. You're right on there, and I think that that's. Uh, I mean, I think it's very deliberate that hope as a uh, vague kind of mystical ambient force is not of much use in this movie. Hope has to be incarnated as a person, right? You have to have someone. To believe in, so all of this nonsense that goes on because um, because Poe doesn't believe in uh, Vice Admiral uh, Laura Dern, despite the purple hair, which I thought really worked for her. Um, but she, if he had believed in her, then he would have 
gone along with it. Like either if, that, or if he respected the military chain of command, like even a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> but like if, so if, 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 if he if believes was... in literally anything other than himself, like yeah. literally just <laughs> any system of organization, <laughs> or like if, I think that if it had been Leia, he would have gone along with it. He wouldn't have been happy, but he would have gone along with it because she, to him, is a symbol of hope because of what she has accomplished. And so there's and there's very that's that's. Believing in people because of their uh, past achievements as kind of an incarnation of hope rather than everything will be fine for no reason, Hmm. right? And I think that both sides have this, that uh, when Ray goes to uh, Luke, she believes in him because he's the hero, right? He's he's done this before, and he can do it again. And similarly, um, on the other side— the dark side, if you will, uh, Kylo Ren has the same relationship with uh, with Darth Vader, although he's out of the picture. You know, he's not alive anymore. But his accomplishment accomplishments are what Kylo Ren are, uh, is putting his hope in. He's trying to continue right what uh, what Darth Vader started. So people have to have what inspires is not just. Uh, pure ideology but individuals who have been shown to successfully carry out this ideology and and luke has a really interesting relationship with this idea in this movie because he he ray comes to him quite explicitly and says you need to come with me so that you can give, go give hope to everybody because we're right. gonna you know rally the resistance around you and he rejects that on a couple different fronts first of all just something that's purely practical he's like you know just me with a lightsaber can't defeat the first order, like just, that's just not a practical thing to have happen. And you get the sense he also, you know, his big arc in the movie is he doesn't trust himself as a leader of anything because his, you know, one attempt at trying to lead people as a, you know, Jedi master did, didn't work out. And so that's kind of his part. Right. Bad at management. <laughs> well, his attempts at fishing are awesome and hugely successful. Yeah. yeah. Even though he's shut off from the force. So that's all like 65 year old Luke muscle power right there. <laughs> muscle muscle power and, and eyesight. Did you see how high above he was above the surface of the water? Like it's amazing that he doesn't have some like floaters or something that he just stabs at in his field of vision. Well, maybe, maybe there's fisherman. some light, light, lightsaber uh, eye surgery. <laughs> yeah, laser, laser uh, eye laser surgery. Sword eye surgery. <laughs> He's um right. Yeah, he he is not. I'm not sure he. So, like, what is the relationship between him and and an idea of hope? I mean, the idea that he's sort of cut himself off from the force uh, seems to mean that he has sort of cut himself off from a lot of from a lot of the the possibilities of hope, and he certainly doesn't want to to be that because he has he has such a he feels so strongly he doesn't want to be that symbol uh, of hope that rallying point for other people because he feels unworthy of it he feels so strongly um so strongly a sense of his failure i guess it's an interesting question if you're going to have your sort of central figure around which you can put uh you can sort of rally around and and have have sort of focalize your hope through this this person does that person necessarily have to be worthy in some way or could they just be a kind of media hope figure uh or or something like that 
You're talking about the Mr. Satan in Dragon Ball phenomenon, yeah. or Hercule. Although that's that's more obscure than we should locate this all in Star Wars land. What are we talking about? Is Boba Fett really that impressive? I guess they give him some additional backstory. Um, well, it's the Phasma phenomenon, right? Is that is that Phasma has this? Well, because there is a counteraction to the hope in the movie and that people do invest other people and institutions with similar sorts of feelings about their influence on the future as this idea of an individual inspiring hope. Like Luke is fixated on the Jedi Council, Jedi Council on Obi-Wan Kenobi, on Yoda, on, on the failure of the Jedi to sustain the Old Republic. And, and this kind of makes him despair. And in much the same way, Phasma kind of lurks on the on the side of this uh, whole episode, and Finn confronts Phasma. And this idea of dismissing Phasma as from his kind of psychic space by plunging her into an inferno of sorts is uh, is how Finn kind of achieves a new sense of it's sort of like Delta Delta of hope is positive in the, <laughs> in the sense that like, it's the removal of a figure of despair, uh, but not necessarily an inspiration in a hopeful direction. So it kind of works both ways that Luke ne- becomes more hopeful in that he leaves behind the things that are holding him back. And Finn also becomes more hopeful in that he leaves behind the things that are holding him back. But then there's also this action of inspiring other people to go forward. There's this sort of this flow that is going through both uh, in bo- toward the direction of the light that's coming from a lot of different figures as they as they come and go on the grand stage that we see. Right. I think it's um, th- yeah that inspiration is in- is important and inspiration as uh, as a verb rather than just a noun. Right. Because uh, so like so like four- breathing. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, anyway. (laughs) Um, Like, in episode four, A New Hope, the new hope is, at least on one level, is Luke himself. He's the new hope. He is the, you know, the one person who can, uh, who can overthrow uh, Darth Vader, and it turns out the Emperor you know, by the transcend by the transcendental property of of hope, I guess. Um, he's the new hope. But in and he and it works. But now he is the old hope, which is not enough. If you only have one hope that isn't renewing itself constantly, uh, you don't have the hope can't sustain hope is not self sustaining. Right? It needs to be refreshed. There always needs to be a new hope. Huh. Right, which is this idea of the burning of the tree of the Jedi library into the symbol of the resistance. Mm-hmm. The resistance has be. It's not that the, when the Jedi end, it's not that the, the role that the Jedi play is no longer played by anybody. It's that the resistance in playing the role that was previously played by the Jedi is a new thing that you could describe it, you know, oh, old boss same new boss same as the old boss but uh but it's still this idea that somebody is pushing this forward it, it's interesting to think of ray in the context of how luke was the old hope and ray isn't ray is the you know, i i still think that ray is a is the if not a protagonist of the movie uh, in a sort of classic sense in that she's the one who arrives at the end of the story at a place that really propels people forward in that she comes full circle on the whole lifting rocks thing um and actually, can we talk about that for just a hot second? This, this lifting rocks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
so so Ray, we've we've charted the course of some of these actions of people being inspired and people uh, reaching for the light in various ways. Ray goes to Ireland, <laughs> space Ireland, and uh, and she meets Luke, and she has this idea of the Jedi as uh, people who have moved rocks with their minds. And Luke says everything you said about it is wrong. And the movie ends with Ray appearing to move rocks with her mind. Uh, it, this is this is a movie that is wrestling with the mall rats idea of a Jedi, <laughs> right? The the like <laughs> Silent Bob reaching his hand out idea of a Jedi that like the if I just will it the lightsaber is going to jump to my hand, which is of course what Whitney Houston's uh, subject of veneration, the children who are our future, does with the broomstick at the end by using the Jedi trick to lift the broomstick off the ground. Um, but but it's interesting to think that Ray has to go through a spiritual and philosophical and psychological and interpersonal journey to arrive at the place where she understands enough about how being a Jedi isn't about lifting rocks, that she can lift the rocks. <laughs> right. That's uh, a thing and, that you can do with the Force, but that's not what the Force is. Well, yeah, well, it's the idea that to an outside observer, that is what it appears like you are doing. Right. Uh, although at the same time, Ray can has the opportunity discursively to redefine what it is she's doing with the Force, even if that's not really operantly how it might work on the back end or how you might train. She, what she's learning is that the Force lifts, the the rocks move in accordance with the tensions of the Force, and the, the Force-sensitive person, whether they're a Jedi or what, is able, through their own personal natural association with this Force, to what channel to maybe direct have some sort of volition but really with the light side you're talking about allowing the light side to do the things that it wants to do right like if we're still going by a return of the jedi sort of cosmology which i think we kind of are maybe that's a question i'd raise to the whole group how much of the movie to what degree is the light side still in a return of the jedi style cosmology where the light side of the force is passive and allows power to happen by, through this sort of humility and asceticism and also generosity and, and hope and good feeling. And the dark side is about kind of will and anger. We'll get to the dark side next week. Um, but like that Ray moves the rocks by being open to the tensions of the universe in such a way that they cause the rocks to move. And so she I has to discover both sides of it in order for that to be how she's able to act as a light side force sensitive person. Sorry, Mark, I think you were jumping in. No, I think this is Ben. I was going to jump in. So I think the the cosmology is an important way to look at this. But the the angle that I got with the rocks was there's always been really up to this movie. There's always been kind of two plots in a lot of Star Wars movies. There's kind of a secular and sacred plot. There's the force users. So there's the Jedi versus the Sith. And that always ends with a big lightsaber at the battle, a big lightsaber battle at the end. And then there's like all the non-force users fighting a like more or less conventional military battle. And they're usually more or less completely separate events. Uh, and the Jedi, that's kind of been the Jedi's problem all along, is they saw themselves as being kind of above the rest of, above the fray, so to speak. That they're kind of doing their own private war with the Sith. And sure, it goes along with the larger battle, but they got their own thing going on. So I think it's notable that this new incarnation of the Jedi and Rey, you know, what is her big triumphant use of the Force it is a utterly practical thing of moving a bunch of rocks so that the secular people can get out of the cave. Right. Like, so, so, so rather than, rather than using the force just to kind of fight her own private battle with evil, it's to be part of the larger effort and assist 
the the so the lesser the so-called lesser people the non-jedi in their goals so would you say that we're living in a post charge of the light side brigade world where previously there were these like <laughs> where the jedi were knights they they were then the knight is right <laughs> the horseman who who can endeavor upon great deeds of valor on the battlefield and does live somewhat a separate sort of existence from the foot soldier but charging into the valley of death in the crimean war the guns proved that the days of the of the night were over and now we're in a situation where the night has to be conscripted into the regular at least can be made a combat engineer if they have good enough math aptitude yeah, Pete, it's like the it's like the guy who invented the land speeder said if i'd asked the people what they want they would have said a faster tauntaun <laughs> <laughs> right. The the I'm taken with your I'm taken with your description uh right from when we started talking about Ray as like, you know, the Jedi are ending, but the, the role that the Jedi are playing uh aren't ending. So it's it, the Jedi aren't ending so much as they're being disrupted by the new economy, right? The new force economy. Well, and and, that, and like, it's super important that the, the books are now going out into the world. This knowledge that's been kept in the most obscure place in the galaxy is as Luke calls it are now like on a ship presumably to be carried around. Yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly it, right? They're going to get digitized and you know, people are going to be the, all those children, right? Like they're uh, when they're not tending to the the beasts of, of burden or the racing animals that they're they're tending to whose names I forget. They're uh they're like uh reading the Jedi texts on their Kindles, you know? Um <laughs> that uh, there is this sense in which the old the old institutions are not or the kind of the old uh thought technologies, right, are not uh, adequate to the task of forming the society, uh, the society that we want to see, right? There's a sort of there it's uh it's what it's akin. I mean, it, it's hard to, to watch star Wars without remembering that it takes place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? Like a long time ago. And it's sort of like, this is star Wars modernity, uh, and the, the movement from a, like a feudalist or aristocratic system into, uh, into modernity with, you know, dissemination of information, a rising middle class, uh, you know, better jobs. Maybe there's going to be some like trade guilds for, you know, child laborers who tend to Ooh, trade. Are they going to make a movie about a trade federation? That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. I got to make a movie about tax. Yes. Absolutely. You're on something, Matt here. Information transfer in the star Wars universe has always been kind of a, uh, a, a very important, but really not explicitly addressed underlying theme here. If you search around the, internet if you google luke skywalker can't read there's some pretty some pretty compelling arguments for why most of the people in the star wars universe are illiterate (laughs) because and we see the effects of this the information transfers so poorly right especially in the force awakens this i'll talk about luke skywalker i thought he was a myth and you know uh han solo's be like yeah the jedi all that stuff that's real uh because apparently they didn't have proper documentation of this and everybody everything just kind of got passed word of mouth and of course we see that word of mouth um myth making and storytelling and and hope creation happen at the end with the kids but the text is important that, that that's traveling out there's a bit of a gutenberg almost thing going on there yeah that's like a interesting now that, now that you mention it have we ever seen books in star wars before mm, you know you've seen jedi holocrons 
Right, but, but we've never seen a book. This is the book, first no. time we've ever seen a book in a Star Wars movie. Well, there was a, the prequel trilogy was a big departure just in terms of the the aesthetic of the world, right? Like, and it it went from it went from fetishizing a kind of Western, an old West, uh, dusty old bucket of bolts uh, aesthetic to you know the the shiny CGI aesthetic. So it's so there have been a couple of discontinuities, I think, that make. Um, a couple of discontinuities that I think make this a more complicated question, but no, yeah, no, no paper books, no, no paper money either, really. So, yeah. so having no Kindles either, though, no eBooks. They're all visual, right? The 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 holocrons and things are all. We almost see no written language at all. There's a little bit that appears on Finn's medical display, but it looks That's like Klingons. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it, what is there's, there's Klingon of- also. Uh, Han's dice have Klingon on them as well. Well, the, the the people we see reading the most are the innumerable people in the background of every scene reading various screens in space battles. Like mm-hmm. there's all yeah. these technicians always reading readouts and you know reporting things to the commanders that then make you know the the big triumphant pronouncements. Uh, my favorite part of this, this is a great moment in the movie, is when the transports are getting away and Finn comes running into the cockpit to tell them to go as fast as they can. It's, I'm fairly certain the pilot figured that one out. <laughs> like, there's no NOS on this transport. It just go, you just put the throttles all the way forward. It's not, we don't need the hotshot pilot for this one. I live my life a quarter parsec at a time, Ben. <laughs> uh, it's, it's reminiscent of the Homeric epic, both stylistically in this case, where also nobody reads. But that's because everybody literally forgot how to read. <laughs> right, like, like that's a period in time where they're describing Bronze Age civilization that had literacy and had literature and had even things like, you know, military and commercial writing, but uh, it's it's being written and retold in the dark, quote unquote, dark ages of Greek history where there is no writing because of the Bronze Age collapse, and so it's interesting to think that like Odysseus, for all his cleverness, never reads a book, as far as I can remember, off the top of my head. Uh, and so, and, and, I don't know, when I was thinking about, because when I saw the text in front of Finn's face, I thought about this same thing. Oh, yeah, there's no, almost no reading in this movie uh, of anybody who, for anybody who matters. They don't even open the books that much. They're like, oh, look at this picture. It's like, uh, yeah. it's Mike Mulligan and the steam shovel. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a picture of a steam shovel. I'll figure out what it means later. I mean, the, 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 to that point, the Jedi texts themselves are never opened in this movie. They're just referenced and revered. Um, oh, yeah, they so, are. They look at it. There's a little, little grimy, or they just look at the cover, the little grimy the Jedi logo. They're just admiring the artwork. Yeah, the cover oh. artwork. You know, <laughs> they are judging a book by its cover. Um, okay, <laughs> so going back to the Jedi text, right? Um, let's talk, and let's also use this as an opportunity to talk about Yoda and his triumphant return. And uh, just sidebar, really got the feels, the chills, seeing Yoda again, right? Man, so good to see him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he lights the little library on fire, I think, knowing that the books are not there. Would you agree or disagree? Oh, yeah, because yeah, he I, says that Ray has everything he needs. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, yeah. There you no, go. no, that was just, I was just agreeing. <laughs> yeah. No, you can re- agree more. Agree more. It's okay. Uh, he he knows <laughs> he knows that the books aren't there, but, but he, Luke does not. To, to be right. very explicit about this, right? It's important uh, for Luke not to know that they're not there. But I think it's pretty clear that that Yoda has to know. And when Luke gets to the other side, he's gonna be pissed because <laughs> then he's gonna know. Because Qui Gon Jinn is gonna be like, "Hey, Luke, what's up?" Yeah, Yoda's like, "Psych." <laughs> they're like, "High five. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I mean, why is it just, why is it important for Yoda that 
Luke not know the books are still are still? Why is it important for Yoda to want uh, Luke to think that the books are gone? Well, I, I feel like there's a he's making a point. That is a good point, but you actually can't really live by the point in absolute terms, right? Which is that these, which is largely that these things don't matter. These things aren't, aren't the important things, right? Like that uh, a little bit, it's, it's about materialism and it's about sort of fetishizing artifacts and things like this. And that like, you know, Yoda's point is that the, the kind of evolving experience is more important. Um, it's about the toxicity of nostalgia too. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's something that we should get into because a lot of this, the, they say as much as they repeat hope, they repeat let go of the past, let go of the past yep. over and over and over in, in this, this movie. Yeah. And the way, the way in which you can kind of, you can kind of come to sort of fetishize the wrong things, um, like the old Jedi or the old, the old institutions or, or something like that. Whether it's a kind of, whether that has a positive valence, as in, like, we need to keep the Jedi Council alive forever, and there's no other form of social organization that will serve the needs of the galaxy other than the the Jedi Council, or a negative valence, right? Like, the Jedi were, were a bunch of silly, hubristic, uh, you know, philosopher kings who really didn't actually make much of a difference and did more harm than good in the world, right? Like, you get, you get attached to those ideas. And so Yoda's point is, like, you gotta let all that go, Except it's not totally true, right? Like, because some things right. matter sometimes, you know? Yeah. And Same thing with, um, sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, no, that, that was it, right? And it's, it's, the, the art really is in distinguishing, is in having the kind of the, the presence of mind to distinguish, uh, between what things matter and at what times they matter. But that's, that's really, that would be more than, than Yoda, than that teachable moment really, really calls for, right? What that teachable moment calls for is a burning tree. Right. I mean, I think, and on, um, Kylo Ren's side of things too, um, he has been literally, almost literally, maybe literally, literally, uh, fetishizing his grandfather's helmet, right? He treats it as a fetish, as a fetish object in the classical, in the classical sense of, you know, this is a, it's imbued with some kind of magic or at least, um, yeah, it's a uh, talisman an, or it's a talisman. Yeah. An aura of authenticity. Um, and he models his own appearance after it to some degree, right. Without being a complete copy. He also wears a mask and Snoke tells him like, that's ridiculous. Get rid of that stupid mask. Right. And, and, and he realizes that Snoke is actually right. And that's not until then he doesn't really, he doesn't fully hold this, uh, you have to kill the past thing. Mm -hmm. And which is the same thing that, uh, that Luke is saying, you have to kill the past. Um, and, and they both do in a way. And it's not until, until Kylo Ren, uh, destroys the, his own helmet, which is supposed to be his connection to his legacy, what he sees as his legacy, um, then he really says, okay, the past is over, and I'm going to be in charge. And that's when he gets really dangerous, right? He doesn't, he can't destroy his master, he can't destroy Snoke until he has destroyed his 
the, the, the links to his past that he was all, that he was still holding on to. I mean, it's I, I would characterize Luke's position a little differently, which is not necessarily like you have to kill the past. It's more like you have to suppress the past, right? And to keep keep what happened in the past from from happening again. And he sort of moves to that. He sort of realizes that. Uh, he he realizes that, right? But these uh, and and Ray has a kind of a similar. I don't know. Ray's uh, Ray's. Is is a little bit about her parents, right? Like uh, right. the right. sense of like, where do I come from? You know, and and sort of belonging, and as though that's going to, as though that's going to to um, sort of fix her, and like she right. she too sort of gets. Uh, uh, as though that's going to like make everything that was crooked straight uh, in her life, and and she too has to kind of let go of those old, uh, those old attachments and those those right. old. That ultimately, that's irrelevant. Yeah, uh, those those old ideas. Like functionally, it's it's sort of irrelevant, right? Yeah. Like, and and it's sort of all. Uh, this all kind of comes to a head in the the crosses and double crosses and and all this stuff that leads to the uh, Ray Kylo Snoke confrontation uh, at the end, right? And the the sort of set, uh, set of lightsaber battles that uh, that ensue. I don't know what did what did you guys think of this uh, this climactic scene, which I think was the middle. Of the three third acts in this movie, yeah. this was the middle third act. This is before the bad boys invade Cuba, is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, or exactly before before Alec Baldwin uh, leads America on the Doolittle Raid. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's it's a retelling of the story of Luke and the Emperor and Vader, yep. exactly. but different. But different, right? right? Um, yeah, that's so, the. Yeah. The part visually that that stuck out to me was the way Ray gets into this. She gets into a literal coffin, like the little space pod that gets dropped off Millennium Falcon is like she is dying in a, in a very certain sense. And it's different than Luke. So she is in a, and her spacecraft descends down to the uh, dreadnought that uh, Kylo and Snoke is on. Whereas in Return of the Jedi, Luke ascends to go fight up in the Death Star. Uh, so just visually, it's it's much more of a you know Ray is kind of descending down into hell to fight the devil, uh, and then she ends up coming out with the truth. Like that's the prize she won at the end of it is like the truth about her parents, even though it was kind of a bitter pill because it wasn't what she was expecting. Yeah, I mean, again, it, may, it matches up to Homeric epic in the sense that she so this is Odysseus going to Hades and seeing Achilles in the middle of the story. As opposed, like this was like this was the culmination of the last story. When you know Odysseus meets Achilles in the Odyssey, Achilles was the culmination of the Iliad, but now Achilles is only a step on the way to the Odyssey. And so Ray's reenactment of Luke's confrontation with the Emperor and Vader is on her way towards something, and not in and of itself a, a fulfillment of who she is in the same sort of full way. Uh, right. And, and so, yeah, she dies, she goes down and then she comes back even to the point of the lens where you looked out the window with the lens to see the spaceships. <laughs> like they, they, they imported the idea of them. They couldn't get the window quite the same. Those windows were too awesome to be replicated. The best window mechanics in the empire were killed in the death star explosion, which is unfortunate because <laughs> they were really good window designers. Um, but yeah, what crosses, double crosses, uh, the idea one thing maybe you guys can unpack this for me a little bit because the idea is that 
throughout the movie, we learned that Force-sensitive people, I can't even call them Jedi and Sith anymore because we're beyond such things, are able to have long-distance communications with each other in sort of full... We're basically going into Star Trek Discovery territory (laughs) where we're not necessarily imbuing these characters with new powers, but we're revising their previous powers with kind of modern cinematic techniques. Wherein now, when they have conversations using the Force, they appear in front of each other. And... Luke does this, of course, famously to Kylo Ren, but Snoke also does it to Rey and to Kylo Ren by implanting false impressions of the future in their minds well, right, through it's this like, communication. Right? right. It's like when I'm, and this is a uh, just a dick move, right? It's right. like in the early days of cell phones when someone would call you, but they had a friend conferenced in, right? <laughs> And it would be like, right? Hey, hey, Ray, what do you what do you think about Kylo Ren? It's like <laughs> that guy's a douchebag. And yeah. then, like, the, the, <laughs> someone the next on the phone day, upstairs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The next day at at you know Force Users School, right? Kylo Ren would be like, "Thanks, Ray. I'm never talking to you again." Right? It's a, it's it works. My point is, it works like a conference call and not just not just like a one on one communication. Like we've seen it before. Uh, when at, at the end of um, Empire Strikes Back, when Luke sort of calls out and gets picked up by the Millennium Falcon, uh, it's it's the sort of thing that has sort of happened before. I thought it was a very good. Uh, uh, there was a lot about it visually that that I thought um that i thought was very good and there was a lot actually there were there were a lot of moments sort of individual moments uh and and let's not analyze the whole thing let's not analyze the whole gestalt that's what next week's dark side podcast is for <laughs> but uh th- there were a lot of very winning uh very sort of lovable and very kind of um charming uh, moments in this and i thought one of them was the visual language of how they managed to do the force uh the sort of force cell phone right the non-holographically mediated one-on-one communication um that the individuals of the force persuasion can use with with one another uh especially i guess given enough power right enough enough sort of skill or uh raw talent for the force like the they cut back and forth as though they were matched cuts uh, they i should say ryan johnson cut back and forth as though they were um match cuts as though they were s- sitting in the same room together they weren't sitting in the same room together but it sort of visually looked like they were and there was a lot of restraint in terms of not showing them together until they touch hands and Luke, you know what I mean? And like dad walks in on them and it's like, dad, I'm, I'm, I'm here with my girlfriend, you know, the, the get out of my room. Um, You're not even my real dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's, uh, you know, it, it, that, that was good restraint and it really kind of made that climax very, um, uh, very satisfying. Uh, to only to only do that to only yeah. do that once. So, so to talk about the light side a little bit and this confrontation, my understanding is that Ray to walk it a little back. Ray goes into the cave, which is similar to the Dagobah cave, yep. where she confronts the dark side and she asks for her parents and she sees herself, which is the exact same thing with slight variation that Luke does in Dagobah. He seeks out to see his father, but he ends up seeing himself. 
Ray, I think, leaves the confrontation with, or leaves this confrontation with herself uh, with a slightly different lesson. But then you get in a situation where Snoke lures Ray to his dreadnought by sending Ray visions that she is going to be able to turn Kylo Ren to the light side. And he simultaneously sends visions to Kylo Ren that he's going to be able to turn Ray to the dark side. And and they each have a series of visions about each other, and it's unclear specifically which of these visions are in the final calculus are implanted by Snoke and which ones aren't, especially with regards to Ray's parents. I don't necessarily think we can take for granted that Kylo Ren is right, but at the same time, the point is that in the dark side, this all matters. In the dark side, what's going to happen and who you're going to be in the future really matters because it's very self-centered. But it, the point is with Ray. She is still her. She is still present as as her. Whoever her parents are, she's who she is right now. And that's kind of the light side approach, that yeah. it shouldn't matter to Rey. The tricks of Snoke don't matter to Rey. The same thing happens anyway because she's not looking to dominate the Force. She's looking to allow the light side of the Force to like act through her. And that's kind of the big truth of the confrontation is that at the end of the day, to Rey, the confrontation is irrelevant. And it really only ends ha- ends up happening between Snoke and Kylo Ren because she's so in touch with the light side that the that the events just sort of move on without her. It's kind of and it's kind of what it seems. Not without her, but with her sort of like riding the tension of them on, on that edge rather than seizing it and acting upon it herself. I don't know. Mark, you, you were you were speaking up there? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to tie uh, the, quickly the notion, the, the, the theme, the question about Ray's lineage to the broader political message of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. I think you're right that we're, it's up in the air whether uh, Kylo Ren is telling the truth that Ray basically came from no one um, and that her lineage is not special. Um, but, the again, like the broader political message of this movie being that uh, the power is with the people um, and then the broader rejection of the aristocratic notion of the Jedi, all that points to, sure, right, race parents don't matter, um, but they do matter and that, like, every nobody in the galaxy matters. So uh, it feels right. It fits for now. I would actually at this point be disappointed if it's revealed that Ray's a Kenobi or a Palpatine or something like mm. that because yeah. it's all kind of neat right now. I, yeah, because all those all those kids, uh, you know that that kid who has, um, who you know who who can magically sweep the floor now he's nobody too. All those kids are nobody too. They come from no one. They're they're nothing. But that doesn't mean they're always going to be nothing. And that doesn't mean that nothing can come from them. Well, they're yeah. I mean, they're nobody in the sense of not not being aristocrats, but does they're not does, royalty? Yeah, yeah they're, they're, well, they'll never be royals, but uh, but <laughs> but it's not. A, they're not worthless for that uh, sort of for that for that reason. So, I, yeah, I was wrong about uh, I was wrong about the uh, communication methodology that Snoke employs. It's not like being on an extension or conference call. It's like he's mutually simultaneously catfishing both of them <laughs> by, you know, texting texting Ray as Kylo Ren and texting Kylo Ren as Ray. He's got a real time kind of uh, uh, force. In forced. crypto terms, it's a, it's a man in the middle attack. Exactly, that's it's exactly. Like they have a connection between the two of them, and he's like altering some, enough of the data to 
send them astray. Right. And, and he thought, and they thought that their, uh, their, um, you know, uh, force SL cipher suites were adequate <laughs> to the, so wait, was, was Kylo Ren wearing a shirt and Snoke like undressed him in the, uh, in the sort of intermediary <laughs> packet. <laughs> yeah. He just photoshopped Kylo Ren's head onto yeah. some Dude, I got really this new Kylo body. Ren skin. I got this great skin. I unlocked it from a loot box. But his, <laughs> his, uh, his, 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 Processing power wasn't sufficient to do his whole torso, so he yeah. <laughs> he only did half of Kylo Ren's torso and the the less uh, the less bumpy uh, eight pack half. Though <laughs> though I you know though as we all know from uh, undercover boss Starkiller base, Kylo Ren definitely <laughs> has an eight pack. All right, uh, it, we couldn't talk about a lot of the the um, the things that are have gone right in this movie and a lot of the things that are sort of charming and that we want to celebrate with. Without talking about some of the creature design uh, and uh, and BB-8, who is glorious and who is back for another triumphant turn um, as a uh, as a slot machine, as a uh, you know real time laser targeting repair droid, and you know so many so 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 many other things. Let's just go around the horn uh, quickly. What are your favorite porg recipes? Do you prefer <laughs> <laughs> roast pork, <laughs> braised pork, stewed pork. Like, uh, like Chewy likes a spit roasted pork, uh, but uh, I'm not sure if he ever has the. I'm not sure if he ever has the gumption to go through with eating it. No, the only way to, to cook a pork is to sous vide it. You got to take your lightsaber, you put it into the vat of water to get it to specific temperature, <laughs> then you just let the pork <laughs> cook in a water bath. Yeah. Dude, I think dude, that. Just, yeah. Go for it. Oh, I think that was, you know, that was a really good scene, not only because the greatest thing in life is watching uh, Chewbacca be mean to small animals, <laughs> but also kind of thematically, it's like, yeah, these these things are cute, but a Wookiee's got to eat. Well, he puts the chicken down. Is he eating a porg? Yeah. Yeah. Does he eat the porg? He puts the porg down. Or just we, like, don't, we, don't, we don't see him eat the porg, but I yeah. think he eats the porg. <laughs> I think so he wait. probably eats it when the porg goes away. It's yeah, only exactly. The when, they're not, when they're not watching, like you don't want to see how the porg is made. I but, disagree. <laughs> that's, when, that's when Chewbacca became vegan, you guys. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, how could he? How could he not? When he, you know, he flies with the porg. The porg make their nest in uh, the porg make their nest in the Millennium Falcon. The, the the it's astonishing how free they are with animals in this. It's it's <laughs> yes. an almost it's an almost Game of Thrones and. I guess this goes with like the old mentality, the kind of the pre-modern mentality of like we sort of live among the animals, beasts, beasts of burden, domesticated animals, wild animals. It's all you know, it's all kind of one habitat, and we all inhabit it together. It doesn't matter if the machinery is delicate, as in the case of whatever like the closet is that the porg are nesting in, like having pulled up wires and stuff to form a little nest with in the Millennium Falcon, or uh, if the machinery is extraordinarily dangerous, as with the many military installations that are infested by various different kinds of animals. Yeah, I mean, it reminded me of uh, it, it, it reminded me of um, the trouble with tribbles, right? You kind of just can't get rid of the once there's one, you know, if you see one mouse, <laughs> there's not just one mouse. If you Perceive. see one porg, it's like soon your ship will be infested with porgs. Infested? 
the disturbing implication is, you know, the reason that, you know, in pre-modern times you had animals everywhere is you, they didn't have any way of keeping the food fresh other than keeping it alive. So mm. is Chewie just keeping all the porgs on board the Blessed <laughs> Falcon to keep them fresh? Like, he doesn't have a good fridge, so it's just like, well, I'll just take them off one by one. It's a sustainable food source. <laughs> Free range porgs. Just like the just like the space cow, the blue milk space cow, you know, just sitting there and uh uh just sitting there waiting waiting to be milked. I mean, you know, I'll bet it's a relief for the cow when Luke comes by with his milk bottle, his canister every day and and uh milks the space cow, milks the space whale. I mean, I, let's I think we need to talk about the flying elephant in the room. Uh, which, which is that this is now a Disney movie, and Disney movies are going to have cute animals that are everywhere and that need to be treated in a really impractically elevated sort of way on a day-to-day <laughs> basis by giving them access to all public and private spaces. No, even, even more, just more specifically, this is this is definitely a sort of, it's got a little bit of Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron going on, right? Like, this is a movie that takes a break from the main story to address the plight of animals in various ways as as being eaten, as being raced for sport, as being present when humans have conflict with each other in their habitats, uh, you know, the, all of the ways in which animals are kind of in, fatally inconvenienced by the presence of humankind. Uh, these, these are all at work in the story, and the story comes down pretty strongly on the side of not doing these things. Like, you should not do these things. You should sure. not them. You should not race them. You should not have wars where they live. Uh, you should you should not do these things. And if you were only not to do them, you would realize the animals are really nice and easy to get along with. And by the way, don't read this new story about a child being eaten by an alligator at Disney World because uh, that's because uh, that's really against this whole ideology. But um, well, you know what I mean, right? That this is the that this is a Disney. I wonder if this is like a Disney-ish. And maybe we could talk about this more when we get to the dark side of the podcast, but to, to pull off from it, the whole Disney side, this is a movie that has an ethos about kindness to animals. As much as we're joking about Chewbacca gorging himself on the flesh of the cute, uh, this movie has an ethos about how to treat animals that is very specific, even more specific than its ethos about the force and how to deal with people with lightsabers. I think I it kind think. of, I mean, I, it sort of pulls its punch in, in certain respects, right? Like, I think right. that, like, um, as a Disney movie, it's, uh, it's susceptible to the, to the goofy Pluto continuum right <laughs> Where, yeah kind of the goofy pluto conundrum the, the dog effing conundrum if you will Where no the the goofy pluto continuum where some dogs are goofies and some dogs are plutos right because really what's the difference between some of the creatures we see you know uh whether abused or lived harmoniously among right like uh, uh luke lives harmoniously with the animals and i think it's it's a sign of his whatever his kind of personal issues it's a sign of his kind of moral enlightenment that he lives harmoniously with with the animals but then he eats fish and there's like a there's like a dragon like sea monster um which, like, by the way, don't have have uh, Chekhov's scaly-backed sea monster in the back of a shot and not threaten anyone with getting eaten. Like, I was ready for that yeah. sea monster to jump up when uh, Ray jumps down the guano hole into into the dark side lagoon. You know, uh, these are. By the uh, way, the these thing- are all these are all attractions at an upcoming Disney park. Uh, the guano hole, the dark side lagoon, <laughs> all of these things. It's a- yeah, it's a, well, it's a, 
But uh, there's also, though, the... Uh, sorry, there's also the other... They're the natives of that planet who apparently are the cleanup crew. This is my are, point. This is exactly, yeah. this is exactly my point. Not so much separates, ha- separates them from yeah. the, the quote unquote natural animals. I mean, they don't even seem to be language users, right? So well, you they are, they're not, they're not common users. Like they can't speak to humans, but they're clearly not just animals either. Right. They're kind of in the middle of that goofy Pluto thing continuum and then not a lot separates them necessarily from the the creatures in space macau right so like the the addition of non-humanoid aliens really complicates the uh the relationship between human and animal you know as like sentient and non-sentient hey ben were you trying to get a word in there so i I met one on the kind of goofy pluto continuum it really paints that porg scene in a strange light because like the reason Chewbacca feels bad when that porg is looking at him is like that porg is clearly like intelligently judging him for eating his friend, mm-hmm. but he still killed and cooked him. Like <laughs> if we assume those porgs are intelligent, like it's not, it's pretty cold comfort that Chewbacca didn't eat the porg. <laughs> but, but, you know, and I think this kind of another way in which the, the movie, I don't know if this is kind of having its cake and eating it too or, or what. But having the, its uh, pork and eating it too. Having its pork and yeah, not eating, having its pork and not eating it too. Uh, <laughs> about, you know, you were talking earlier about the, the movie definitely comes down on the side of be kind to animals. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, the message at the end is that don't expect the animals to be kind to you in return. Because there's these the crystal critters uh, who I loved, by the way, the little ice foxes at the end. Like there's mm-hmm. this bit where, oh, the rebels are going to be wise and like use the ways of the the nature to get away and out of this cave. And it turns out like, nope, crystal critters had their own way out. That has nothing to do with humans. They're doing their own thing over here. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. their way out is not your way out. And, you know, don't expect any favors from them. <laughs> mm. As we uh, as we wind down the light side of the forest podcast, we can't uh, but help but consider that most merchandisable critter of them all, um, Mister BB Eight. Uh, the you know one of the I guess like R two is a type of droid unit, and I guess BB is a type of droid unit, and we meet evil BB Eight. You know, yeah. in this uh, who who ends up. Uh, uh, selling them at the 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 selling them out at the tracking device or leading the charge into the tracking device, but uh, but BB-8 and BB-8's personality is uh, a real uh, important important part of this this movie. Pete, what did you think of uh, how he was used in this well, episode? I mean, I felt like the big. We've already mentioned it a couple times in the episode. I felt like the big Downton Abbey moment of the movie is when the little shrewish fellow puts a bunch of coins in BB-8 thinking that BB-8 is a slot machine and because it reflected the folly of the shrewish dude, the little the little guy, thinking that this thing that he was confronting now is the same as the things that he's confronted in the future and applying the same solution to the problem that he's in, applied in the future, in the past and it not and him being kind of oblivious to the fact that it doesn't work and that he needs to change the way that he thinks. And also this idea that like BB-8 does this. BB-8 takes on the roles of other machines, as we've mentioned, as is necessary. He he shoves his head into the circuit board to close the circuits to fix up the, the spaceship for Podamer, and he, he connects into the walker in order to sort of take on the role of the walker. Again, you know, he is the, the slot machine. He gets in the wastebasket and rolls around. And He's all droids this, to yeah. all men. 
He is, he is. And so there's this sense that BB-8 doesn't necessarily – there's an aspect of BB-8 that doesn't necessarily transform intrinsically in these acts. The question is, like, does BB-8 have a purpose? Does BB-8 have a telos, or is BB-8 more of an existential figure whose essence supersedes its, its existence? Right. That like which, Wait, by other, way, mean, other way around. Other existence way around. Other existence way around. supersedes his essence. Right. Uh, existence would would precede essence. Right. Yeah. So like either what I mean in that is that is BB-8 a, like C-3PO is a protocol droid designed to do protocol things. When C-3PO is forced to do things that aren't protocol related, C-3PO gets uncomfortable and pissy. And that's kind of like the joke is that see, he's a robot. So he only has very specific things he's programmed to do. Is BB-8 a sort of reconnaissance? He's a he's a astromech drone he's an astromech. droid. He's but, an astromech droid, but yeah. But we know from um, from the from the Forge Awakens that he is one of a kind. That he's somehow not he's not just off the shelf, right? Mm. Poe or someone. It's implied that it's Poe, but not said for sure. Uh, has made modifications, right? Has he's not your he's not your average droid he's special somehow he's well that, not, I mean, he, bb8 is also on the goofy pluto continuum there's, yeah, there's I, the same thing going on with droids here where both bb8 mm-hmm. and r2 have an interiority that most other other droids don't mm. right and so oh. there's this, yeah go for it and wonderfully illustrated when r2 is having his moment with luke and brings back the princess leia projection yeah uh, oh, that was yeah. a pretty special moment there. bad bad Oof. British accent and all. Yeah. You know, that, yeah, that's well, and it's interesting that as you get closer to sort of humanoid form in the droid, you get farther away from like a unique personality, uh, with, with 3PO being just sort of a, uh, fuss budget all the time and, uh, and R2 having a little more, um, a little more adventure, a little more danger, a little more kind of swashbuckling. Um, and a little more well, adaptability can, in him. Yeah, well, we can't really... I mean, I think a lot of that is our projection, no pun intended, um, because we don't know what he's saying. We only have the tone and his uh, body language, and so it's a lot easier to... It's, it's, so it's a lot more iconic, right, mm-hmm. than, uh, rather than having him be a, a person in the same way that... 3PO is constant stream of obscenities, just constant. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, those are those are actually just bleeps. He's cursing you know? the whole time, is what's <laughs> happening, and they just cut it out. Yeah. <laughs> That's where the bleeps come from. All right, before we start, before we start cursing, and the and the bleeps come fast and furious here on <laughs> on the pot. Wait, no, Fast and Furious. That's a different franchise. Uh, the uh, they the bleeps start coming on this podcast. Let's let's call it there for uh, the light side of the the. Force. Gentlemen, thank you very much for podcasting. Thank you all for listening. Uh, if Hey, it's a, it's a week. If you're listening to this right when it comes out, you got uh, uh, another shopping week till Christmas. Um, you know, and uh, three or four more weeks until the sort of arbitrarily defined holiday season is over. You know, let's just say it goes to mid-January. That's that's fine. So uh, head on over to Overthinking It. Check out our gift guide. Uh, check out especially the Overthinking It merch that we have there featuring our beloved mascot, Otis, our own BB-8, our own cute, fuzzy thought bubble of a porg uh, who adorns uh, uh, T-shirts and hats and tote bags 
bags and and uh, all manner of of Disney esque merchandise in a in a cutesy effort worthy of George Lucas, master of Ewoks himself. Um, head on over to Overthinking and check out our gift guide and uh, support Overthinking when you buy some of the stuff that's on there. We'll be back next week with the dark side of the last jedi podcast Mm, fear leads to anger anger leads to hate hate leads to suffering suffering leads to overthinkingit.com where we subject (laughs) the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably probably doesn't Deserve. It does not. <laughs>